Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 757th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. And today on our show, we have the replay of our Rosie on the House radio hour from July on extreme heat weather gardening. Enjoy. Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the House, your weekend wake-up tradition. Farm living is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Already here in the fourth Saturday of the month, so we have Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm joining us. And who knew when we put the talking points together for our annual homeowner handbook, Farmer Greg, that your extreme heat gardening talking point would come right in a record-breaking year of the most consecutive days over 110 degrees here in Arizona. I promise, I promise, (laughs) promise, I didn't plan it this way. (laughs) For next year, why don't you say something like unusually cool summer gardening tips or something like that? (laughs) Right. We can do that. (laughs) Well, you couldn't have picked a better topic for a better time. Where are we going to get started today? All right. First of all, I want to talk about the three big ways that people kill their plants. And I give a class, Three Ways to Kill Your Fruit Trees. And people kind of look at me funny. Why would I want to kill my fruit trees? Well, it's not really about killing them. It's about making sure that we don't kill them. And it looks like this. If you're planting your trees, plants, gardens, if you're planting anything, if you're putting your chicken coop in and you're putting it in a hot microclimate, in a hot space in your yard. And what makes that space hot is gravel, dirt, block walls, concrete patios, no shade. If you're putting them there, they will struggle. And we have to do extra work to make sure that we fix that. The number two thing, three ways to kill your trees is leave the ground bare. Just leave dirt or gravel on the ground. We never wanna do that. And then the third challenge that we have around keeping our plants alive is this thing called drip irrigation, especially on fruit trees and really any trees. And if you're just putting one drip emitter on uh, on the tree, then the tree is probably in trouble. Usually what happens is when they plant that tree, drip emitter goes right next to the trunk. And as the tree grows, the drip emitter doesn't move. So all that water for three minutes a day is going right next to the trunk and not doing the tree any good. So those are the three big things we're going to talk about today. And it's hard when somebody asks you about your watering schedule or tells you their watering schedule, and they're so proud of what they have and everything. And how do you tell them? I'll give you an example. We're at 4th of July, and a friend of the family's there. And Somewhere along the way, I I got designated as the apple pie baker. I'm not a baker, but I planted apples 10 years ago. They're still good right up through the 4th of July on the Anna apples. What are you going to do? You got to bake apple pie for 4th of July. Why not? 
I have the apples. And so they're asking about the what kind of orchard and this and that. She's like, I've got these citrus and they're doing great. I water them for 30 minutes twice a week. And is it working? I said, are they bearing fruit? She goes, I don't know. I don't really eat them. <laughs> I guess if you're not growing it to eat it, then I won't say anything. But I'm like, wow, 30 minutes twice a week. That's, I, that, I know that's somewhere on your talking point on ways to kill your trees somewhere here. <laughs> yeah, overwatering. The problem with overwatering a tree and underwatering a tree is that the damage looks the same. So often what happens is people will be watering their trees. I get this every other day for 30 minutes, and that's way too much water because the trees have to dry out in between. And when you're doing that, they'll reach out to me and they'll say, hey, my tree is drooping. Then their tree is drooping. What do you automatically assume? They need more water. So you add more. So you add more. So, yeah, paying attention to the watering is really important. And while we're on watering, let's just talk through that process. I suggest that people water their fruit trees once a month in the winter. And this could be really any trees and any bushes once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer with a caveat. When it's cooler in the desert, and when I say winter, November through March, if you have a nice basin around your tree, we'll talk about that in a little while, if you have a nice basin around your tree and you're watering the basin, filling the basin full of water and letting it settle in once a month, that's probably plenty of water for your tree. And then when it warms up in March-ish, you want to start watering your tree twice a month. And you, again, basin around the tree or basin around the bushes, plants, deep water it. So fill the basin full of two or three inches of water, let it sink in. And then the caveat in this watering methodology is that you pay attention to the plants. You have to go out and look at your plants, see how they're doing. So if you're 10 days in, to two weeks and the tree starts to droop a little bit, then you know it needs water. Then you give it water. And what I found after growing trees for over 50 years in Phoenix is that once they're established, the once a month in the winter and the twice a month in the summer works great. And I didn't design that. I grew up at 28th Street in Indian School on a flood irrigated property. And guess what? We planted fruit trees and we got water once a month in the winter and twice a month in the <laughs> summer and the trees thrived. So I just took a clue from that process. And it seems to me that it's a lot easier to bring a tree healthier if it is lacking water. All you do is add it. If you're yeah. overwatering it and you're saturating it and it's got fungus and that's a lot harder of a fix to bring the tree back mm -hmm. to healthy. Exactly. And I promise you, if you follow my fruit tree watering methodology for any trees and bushes and perennial plants, this works once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer. And as soon as it gets hot, just start paying attention to your trees. And if they droop, they need water. It's that simple. Very good. And making sure, I know you're not a huge fan of drip irrigation, the amount of emitters, the time it's on, the deepness, the time that you run the irrigation depends on how much water your irrigation system is putting on at any one point. Exactly. So let's talk about that. Single drip emitters on a tree is a sure failure 
if you have one drip emitter on there. We have something in our fruit tree program we call a drip ring. It has 20 half gallon per hour drip emitters on it. So it's putting out 10 gallons an hour. And it's a circle and it goes in the basin. And what we suggest people do is unplug your drip emitter, hook this into its place, and that evenly distributes the water throughout your entire basin or around the space around the tree and let it run for a couple of hours so that you're getting a good deep water. Now, if you want to check that, you can get yourself an inexpensive $9 moisture meter. Just put that in and make sure that the water is getting far enough in. The other thing is, and we'll talk about this later, is make sure that you put woody mulch in the basin around your trees and plants rather than gravel. Rather than gravel. Yeah. Another point you're going to make, of, I'm sure, somewhere, just because we've had this conversation before, is when you're talking not gravel, woody mulch, another not is lawns as well. A lot of people easily think, oh, it's a lawn, there's water, it's green, it'll go yeah. good in the lawn. That lawn will overpower your tree very easily. Exactly. Bermuda grass can outcompete your tree, absolutely. And what I suggest that you do, and there, we have solutions in our programs, we have solutions for all your low desert maladies that you're dealing with, and we can talk about them as well. What we suggest to do in a lawn is you dig a six foot diameter basin, go down three or four inches, take out the lawn, plant your trees or plants in the middle of that basin, backfill the whole thing with woody mulch once it's planted. And then what happens is that the tree or plant can get established before the Bermuda grass takes over. And your only job for the first year is just weed whack around the basin and over the course of the next couple of years, the tree will get established, the grass will come back, and you have a successfully planted a tree in a lawn. I know I jumped all over your talking points there. I've hit a spot maybe about every segment you had here pinging all over the place. So I'll let you take the steering wheel back and go to our next talking point here. That's okay. So hot microclimates. What's a hot microclimate? A hot microclimate is someplace where there is gravel, where there are block walls, where there's concrete patios, and where there's no shade. That's a lot of backyards in Arizona. And your job is to see what you can do to mitigate some of that heat. When you're planting plants, trees, bushes, shrubs, anything perennial, they live year over year. When you're planting them, you want to make sure that you plant them correctly for our instructions. Correctly means that you add 60% planting mix, 40% native dirt. You mix that in a wheelbarrow. We like to neutrify that soil with azomite, mycorrhiza, worm castings, and some organic fertilizer. You mix all that up, you plant it, and then put a basin around the tree. And we'll talk about the basin after the break. Sounds good. We'll be back with Farmer Gray right after this. Heart, 
talking through Extreme Heat Gardening this Saturday morning with Farmer Greg, and we were just getting into a conversation about basins and how to properly treat the ground around your trees. Yeah, and really how to treat your ground in your backyard and front yard. When I do garden consults, I do garden consults with people virtually, so over Zoom or over the phone. And when I see a blank dirt backyard, there's a couple of steps I take them through. First of all, I coach them into putting in plumbing and electrical throughout your backyard while it's still dirt. Rent a ditch witch, put in plumbing for sure to each corner of the yard, and then while you have the trenches open, put in conduit in place in case you ever want to run electricity. And then what I coach them to do is put six to 12 inches of woody mulch in the entire space. And I was going to say, and you, it is very hard to over infrastructure. If you think, oh, I just need one water spout here, put two along the way. Or I yeah. only need a one inch PVC pipe for wire, put a three inch PVC pipe. If you hey. if you think, hey, I eventually may want a little outdoor fire pit that's gas driven, which in Arizona, that's pretty much in, in most places, a fire pit. If you want to be able to burn every day, it's got to be gas, not a, a traditional log burning. But you know, put in a gas line. It doesn't have to be hooked up to anything, but get the yep. infrastructure in. While you have the tr- ditch witch there and the trenches open, get it in. And there are ways, and depending on voltage and what you're running, most of it, it's stuff you can just bury. But if you're doing any kind of heavy gauge wire out back to a potential shed or outhouse or a casita, that's a different level and you're going to need permits for that. And there's much deeper levels of ditch which you can't get to. But yeah. if you're just doing landscape lighting and low voltage and water lines for irrigation, trench yeah, away. Or a, or a plug out by your chicken coop. Exactly. Yeah. So get that done before you put any woody mulch down. Because if you put a foot of woody mulch down, digging through that to put that infrastructure in is impossible. And the thing that drives me nuts is when they build a house, they put one spigot in the backyard. I know. Right? And you will thank me later for multiple spigots, especially when it's this hot outside. That's why when you go to the hardware store, you used to see a spout splitter where it would be two. So you can yep. now have two hoses. Now you go there and you have them with four or five. <laughs> right. Exactly. So get that infrastructure in and then get your woody mulch down. What happens at the interface between the dirt and the woody mulch is very quickly, it starts making really good soil. So over the course of the next six to 18 months, you're actually starting to build incredible soil in your backyard. And the other big, huge thing that we'll do for new homeowners is it cuts down on the dust level. And you don't have to do anything to start that great soil from developing. You just set it there and let nature start doing its thing. Exactly. I was out at a client four or five years ago, and they had put two feet of woody mulch in their backyard, per my instructions. And it had been there for almost a year. I was there in February, and we hadn't gotten any rain since November. So what's that, five months? And I asked him for a shovel, and I dug down eight inches, and it was wet. And I asked him if he was watering the woody mulch, and he said, nope, that's just from our last rain. So it acts like a sponge as well. So let's go back to where we started this segment, and that's the basins around the tree. And I talk about creating healthy soil and creating basins around your trees. 
as often as I can, because those are the two biggest things you can do for the success of your trees and plants. So when you plant your tree, you put it in a six foot diameter circle, put it in the middle, put the tree up on a little bit of a mound so it comes up, the root flare comes up a couple inches above grade. And then you backfill the whole thing with six inches of woody mulch. That is the first thing for extreme heat tree care that we wanna make sure that we do, is get your woody mulch in. Get your tree planted with all the nutrients in there so it has the nutrients to thrive and the insulation and sponge on top to hold on to the water and create healthy soil. Then the next thing I want you to do in that basin is I want you to plant either cowpeas, which we give away cowpeas for free with our fruit tree program. When you get fruit trees from fruittrees.org, we give you free cowpea seeds. And a cowpea is a bean that loves the heat, so loves the heat. It thrives in 115 degrees. And what it does is it creates a green cover mulch growing on top and that keeps the heat down. In 2017, I went out front, I used one of those heat meters and I measured the ground temperature in the front yard, middle of August. It was 150 degrees at ground level. Underneath my cowpeas and sweet potatoes, that's the other thing you can plant is sweet potatoes, 89 degrees. That's the difference between your plants and trees making it and them not making it. Sweet potatoes are great. I'm not sure yep. I'm familiar with cowpeas. Can you eat those? Oh, yeah. It's an edible that thrives in the heat. Yep, absolutely. That is Extreme Heat Gardening. More with Farmer Greg here at Rosie on the House right after this. through our urban farming hour with farmer greg talking extreme heat gardening and we had gotten to the topic of shade and you have more types of shade here you like to cover yeah so a lot of the shade that we talk about is around fruit trees and we've covered that stuff let's talk about in your garden and having some kind of shade because you don't want to grow cowpeas and sweet potatoes in your garden unless you're growing cowpeas and sweet potatoes because that's what you're growing. But for a ground cover, you don't want those in your garden because they grow so voraciously, they'll take over everything. So we suggest using maybe straw. You can get uh, straw at a feed store and put that on top. That'll add a buffer layer. So that's, that's a natural way you can do it. And then there's paid for shade. And I did this at the urban farm where you go to the local hardware store or Costco and you buy shade sales. You're actually putting up some kind of a shade cover over your plants. It's generally that's a little more expensive than planting a tree, but that gives you at least some control over shading parts of your garden. And I suggest if you're going to shade fruit trees or other trees, like that, you wanna shade the west side and the top of them. The sun is most intense in the afternoon 
So if you can get them in the shade in the afternoon, they're going to do a lot better, including your gardens. And when you're talking putting shade over the top of the trees, I guess it depends on how you define a tree. And a lot of our fruit trees we trim to keep them so we can pick the fruit and arms reach from the ground. So we're not talking about 20-foot tall structures. Correct. Exactly. We And in our fruit tree program, we talk about keeping your trees 6 to 10 feet tall. And what I suggest that people do is get for your smaller trees. And usually once the tree is established after the first year, once you have your basin in place, you're fertilizing regularly. We're going to talk more about that in a little while. And you put the woody mulch basin around the base. If you've done all of that and you still need shade, what I suggest that people do is they get two eight-foot-long metal stakes. You can get them at a hardware store and put them on the west side and one eight-foot-long metal stake on the east side of the tree. And then you buy some shade cloth and you run it up the west side and across the top. Here's the caveat with this, though. You never want to put shade on all sides of a tree or a plant. Even the shade cloth, while it will breathe, it still creates a greenhouse-like atmosphere, and you can cook your trees that way. You know how I know this, Romy? Experience, I'm guessing. <laughs> exactly. I did this on a tree at the Urban Farm maybe five or six years ago, and I put shade on all four sides in the top. And in the summer, it took about, I don't know, 15 days, and the thing was dead. That's incredible. 15 days. That's quick. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing, depending on what kind of netting you get, birds can have a tendency to get caught up and trapped in that. So if you leave a way out as well, you don't end up creating a bird net catching. So here's the thing. I'm talking about shading with shade cloth. I don't know why anybody would buy bird netting. Bird netting does two things really successfully. It tangles up and kills birds, and it tangles up in the tree. I had a neighbor down the street of the urban farm who used bird netting on one of her trees. She was an elderly lady. It took me four hours of cutting and pruning, cutting the bird netting and pruning the tree to get it extracted from the tree. If you want to protect your trees from birds, you want to use something called tool, T-U-L-L-E. You buy it at the fabric store. Never use bird netting. And never completely close in a plant or a tree on all four sides when shading. Exactly. You just want to cover a couple of sides. So one more thing you can do to shade your tree is use a tree wrap. Anytime the main trunk is exposed to direct sunlight, there's cloth tree wraps. We sell it at our fruit tree program. You can buy it at most hardware stores. I know that Barry's True Value Hardware there on 12th Street and Northern carries it. You just wrap the tree trunk and that protects the tree trunk as well from getting sunburned. And I know a lot of our arborists like tree wrapping versus the specific tree paints for, but there's different applications for both, but that's definitely a more long-term solution. You just don't want to wrap it tight or tight around the trunk. Leave it loose. Let the tree have room to grow. Let the trunk expand without being constricted by anything. Exactly. And mostly the tree wraps that we work with are made out of cloth. So they just, they do expand as the tree expands. 
on an aside note, occasionally I will see these wires that have been wired around a tree to hold it, keep it from swaying in the wind. And if it if you wrap that tight around the tree, it will cut off the tree as the tree grows. It'll cut off the tree's bark and the tree can actually snap off. So you never want to put something tight. Even the tags that come with the trees are strong enough. If the tree grows and you don't take them off, that can hurt the tree. It has to expand. Let it do its thing. When you talk about paid for shade, one of the other things, you depending on where and how you plant and your home is structured, that shade could be paying you by just keeping your home shaded, which obviously is any kind of shade application we can do to our home is less heat gain that it creates on it. So it's all part of our holistic look at incorporating our landscape and our urban farm into our lifestyle. Exactly. I had a west-facing wall at the urban farm that my office was on the inside of the house. And in the summertime, in July and August, the wall would get so hot that I couldn't touch it. It was that hot. And I planted two mulberry trees on the west side of that west-facing wall. And I'll tell you, it made a huge difference. I'm not going to get sidetracked on the mulberries because I we could do a whole segment on mulberries. The history of them coming into Arizona, them phasing them out, them being able to be reintroduced back in the different areas. You, you can age a neighborhood by uh, a mulberry tree, I think, faster than you can some of the architecture. Right. I do want to throw in here, I get this question at least once a month. You can't plant, it's not legal to plant mulberries. And when you actually dig into zoning laws, they don't want you planting male mulberries. It is perfectly legal throughout the entire state of Arizona to plant female mulberries. And the female mulberries are the ones that make the awesome berries. It is, and they are great trees. I won't spend a whole segment on those. But you want to talk about extreme heat, where we go to get out of the heat when we're outside? Under our mulberries. Under the mulberries, We got our little evap cooler out there, our table and our chairs and our sitting area. That's our refugee out of the sun is a big, giant mulberry. Yeah, exactly. And they do get big, that's for sure. Oh, I said we could spend a whole hour on them, but let's move on. All right. There's one more thing to talk about real quickly. And I had one of these over my outdoor kitchen in Phoenix, and I have one right outside my window right now, and that's pergolas. Pergolas are structures that you can assemble, and then they generally have a slatted roof or some kind of the sunlight can get through roof. And then I, in Phoenix, I used to grow grapes up up over my pergola out over the patio. And here I'm growing some grapes and some scarlet runner beans over my pergola. So you can actually grow things grow them up over, and that creates an outdoor shaded area, kind of like the mulberry you were just talking about. And it can add a nice architectural aesthetic look to it as well. Exactly. Fine shade. That's, I guess that's a whole takeaway of this last segment and a half. Whether it's paid for or planted, make your shade. Yeah, put that shade in place. That is for sure. All right, let's get on to fertilizer because that's another important element and no shortage of need right now. But it's this kind of heat and over fertilizing, you could very easily burn your plant. I bet I bet you could do it. You could kill a tree in less than 15 days with fertilizer if you tried hard <laughs> enough. 
Yeah, and it depends how you're fertilizing it, that's for sure. And so we start the fertilizing process when we plant the tree. I mentioned this earlier, dig your square hole, take 60% planting mix, 40% native soil, two ounces of mycorrhiza, two pounds of azomite, two pounds of worm castings, and two pounds of organic fertilizer. All of those are slow release. You mix them up in the hole and you plant your tree. Put your basin around the tree. That's your first layer of getting fertilizer to the tree. And that really makes the trees strong and more resilient to the heat that we're having. Now, if you haven't done that, trees already in the ground, what do you do? First of all, we highly suggest that you fertilize with an organic fertilizer and you fertilize a granular fertilizer on Valentine's Day, Tax Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. So every two months during the growing season. Trees and plants, they need to eat every day. We don't need to feed them every day, but we need to set them up for success. And when you're putting a slow-release organic fertilizer out for them, that helps them be successful long-term. So that's the first place to go. And this is just something you spread across the top of the soil. Yes. Yeah. And what we suggest for trees, however, for your gardens, you can put it on top and water it in. What we suggest for trees is you get a shovel and underneath the drip line of the tree, that's basically if the sun was straight up overhead, shining down, the drip line is the place that would be shaded. You take a shovel and you stick it in the ground five or six or seven inches, rock the shovel back and forth, pour the organic fertilizer in that hole, cover it up, and water it in. That way you're getting the fertilizer to the root zone of the tree, especially if you have your woody mulch basin, the fertilizer has to go through all that woody mulch. The other thing is most organic fertilizers smell like fish and your dogs will love it. <laughs> they roll in it, they, you know, so on and so on and so on. Getting the fertilizer down to the root zone is really important. All so right. That's, when we get back, I'm going to have you bring up foliar feeding that we talked about. Oh, it's been, I think, probably about 18 months since we had your guest on, but it's a great yeah. topic and it's on track with fertilizing. Final segment with Farmer Greg right after this. All right, Farmer Greg, talk to us. What is foliar feeding? This is until you had brought it to us, I don't know, like about 18 months ago. I'd never heard it or seen a product and a nursery for it. Very interesting. Yeah. Foliar fertilizing is spraying the plants directly on the leaves, the branches, and the trunks. And usually it's a kelp-based or a fish-based fertilizer. And we have a schedule set up. So we suggest that people foliar fertilize every two weeks. And you do that by getting one of those pump sprayers from the local hardware store, gallon or two gallons. I bought one that goes on my back that's battery powered. And you just go through your garden. You can do this on all your garden plants and all your fruit trees, all your trees. It will, this is extreme gardening techniques and it will super energize your trees and plants. Every two weeks sounds like a lot, and I guess it depends on how big you're, of an area you're trying to apply. But you're not a, you're applying very little product when you look at the mixture ratio. Exactly. 
And we have the products from High Creations that we sell on our website. Which are it's, local ASU grads. You can't get any more local than these guys. There you go. Exactly. And the dosage rate is one ounce per gallon. <laughs> so we're taking I, one ounce. This is like three capfuls of this product, putting it in a gallon of water. So you're not using very much. And the nutrition is getting directly into the leaves and the trunks. I think a lot of your synthetic weed killers are closer to six to eight ounces per gallon. This is extremely effective if it's only one to one ounce to a gallon, just yeah, for a, exactly. a comparative ratio. There's another technique. It's another funny word. We got foliar feeding. We got fertigation. Fertigation is adding those same types of fertilizers, including some humic acid-based fertilizers in the same dosages, an ounce per gallon, into a gallon of water, and then use that to drench on the roots. This time of year, with it, with it being so hot, it's not a good idea to foliar feed your plants. You need to be sub 85 degrees if you're going to be foliar feeding. So we don't suggest foliar feeding in the in this this heat we're experiencing. And is that because the water left on the limb could burn the leaf itself because it's so hot? Exactly. That's exactly it. So fertigation goes right to the roots. One of the applications that I've done here at my farm in North Carolina is I planted a hundred elderberry trees a couple of weeks ago and I added a irrigation system, drip irrigation system in place in case we, we need to actually water them. But the other reason I put the drip irrigation system in place is to deliver these nutrients. There is a product called Hozon, H-O-Z-O-N, and I would just search the internet for it. It goes on your hose bib and there's a little pipe that feeds into a five gallon bucket. And when you turn on the hose bib, the water's going down the hose and it's sucking up the water from the five gallon bucket. So what I do here at my farm in North Carolina. And what I did in Phoenix is I set up a five gallon bucket of drench or fertigation feed. And that's five gallons with five ounces of fish fertilizer in it. I put the hose on connection on the bucket. And as the water goes through the drip irrigation system, it's pulling those nutrients out of the five gallon bucket and delivering it to each one of the trees. So that's another way you can fertigate your plants. And there's actually full systems called fertigation systems that you can buy and add to your irrigation systems that will hook up nutrition right into your irrigation system. And what I like about that, and I've talked about when I go on in my next major undergo for infrastructure and build out for our property is to put that in. And you don't always have to have fertilizer in there. But if you do, it gives it at such a small increments, but it gives it every time you water. So as long as you just remember to fill that up, you never have to go worry about fertilizing at any time. I love the concept. It's on my wish list. Yes, exactly. It makes 
it makes getting nutrients to your plants super easy. And remember, and I've started saying this recently, your plants, just like we do, they need to eat every day. We need to set up success systems to make that happen. Because the more nutrient dense the trees are, the plants are, the more resilient they're going to be from this extreme heat. And extreme heat we have had, again, this is record-breaking consecutive days, over 110 degrees, and we're doing what we can here at Rosie on the House with Farmer Greg to help you get through it with your urban farm and landscape and plants and garden. And Farmer Greg, tell us about your podcast real quick where people could follow along and get weekly updates. Oh, thank you. So Starting seven and a half years ago, I started the Urban Farm Podcast. You can find it at urbanfarmpodcast.com. And we bring, it's mostly interviews. I bring in people that are doing cool things around gardening and farming, and we have them share their stories. And that's the website for that? Urbanfarmpodcast.com. Very good. All right, we look forward to talking to you in August. The fourth Saturday of the month, that will be the 19th as we get ready for our planting season. Nice. Love it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.